Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week we're finding out some of the issues affecting LGBTQ plus people in research and looking into the genome of one of Australia's most iconic animals. Plus, we'll hear about the computer coded in DNA. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. First up this week, we have some quality content for you. Why did you say it like that? Like what? Well, you said quality a bit weird. Did I? This better not be a koala pun. We are a serious science podcast, Adam. Ben, you know I take this equality as seriously as you. Right. Well, just get on with it then. Tell us all about the koalas. What makes you think this is about koalas? So koalas are not usually something you'd associate with cutting-edge genetics, but while they're not as popular amongst geneticists as good old E. coli, scientists have finally been able to sequence the koala genome. So koalas joined the esteemed list of species that have had their genomes sequenced. But even among marsupials, koalas are unusual, and their genes give some insights into their unique lifestyles, as well as providing information for conservation projects. I met Rebecca Johnson, lead of the Koala Genome Project, and started off by asking her for some facts that we should all know about koalas. Everyone probably already knows the koala is cute, but things that are interesting to know and people should know is that they're the only living species from their entire family. And over evolutionary time, there were probably up to 20 different koala species, but we only have the one now. And their closest living relative is the wombat. What do they mean to, to you personally then? Uh, to me, they're, they're really an icon of conservation. So, so they're an icon of the attention that we should give to the natural world. And the 
also to stop and think what our actions as humans might have on the natural world. How are koalas doing as a species? Are they under any kind of threat at the moment? Uh, yes, they are. So once upon a time, they, they would have been found across the entire country. But as the climate became more arid, they're only now found on the east coast. And because, particularly because of the impacts of uh, European settlement, so which is only very relatively recent in Australia, there's a lot of development and there's a lot of uh, removal of habitat. And um, there is also they suffer from diseases. And this is unfortunately impacting populations. So why actually sequence the koala genome? Well, the koala in general has such a specific lifestyle. They've got such uh, specific adaptations to living in the trees and and eating a very narrow diet of largely eucalyptus to the point where it would be toxic or fatal to most other mammals. Well, let's not beat around the bush. What did sequencing the genome tell you about how they managed to maintain this quite ridiculous diet? Yeah, so uh, we we found that they're basically super detoxes. So there's a group of uh, metabolic enzymes called the cytochrome P450s. And these are enzymes that are so important for metabolism of things in the environment. Every organism has them from very basic multicellular organisms to right up to humans have many of them as well. Koalas seem to have many, many more than any other species. And this isn't the only thing you found out about the koala's diet. You were also looking at how the koalas managed to be quite picky eaters. Yes. So they eat a really restricted diet. They are trying to avoid eating as much poison as possible. And we found that they seem to have a lot of bitter taste receptors. And this is probably to help them avoid toxins and probably also helping them to optimise the nutrient content that they're choosing. But it wasn't just diet that you were looking at here. It was also how the immune system of the koala can cope with uh, with various problems that koalas are currently facing. Yeah, that's right. And so koalas suffer, unfortunately, from chlamydia, but they get it in their eyes and they also get it in their reproductive tract. And this can, if untreated, can result in blindness or then becoming infertile and ultimately death. And it is presumably incredibly painful. So being able to characterise the immune genes was amazing because we can then start looking at how these are expressed in animals that either have chlamydia or have 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 recovered from chlamydia or even animals that are used in a chlamydia vaccine trial. So so an incredibly powerful set of genes that we can now see how individual animals respond. So far lots of very interesting information about koalas but how would this actually feed into efforts for conservation? Yes, so we've shown that the animals that are very genetically diverse are the ones in Queensland and New South Wales, which are also the ones that are showing declining populations, very significantly in some cases. The Queensland population is estimated to decline by 50% in the next three generations, which is only 20 years. Uh, the, the New South Wales population similarly is, is thought to decline by estimated to be about 30% in the next three generations. So something really needs to be done now. And uh, the genome got enough attention from the New South Wales government that they decided to use genetic markers as a form of management going forward. So this information about diversity is already feeding into conservation decisions. Are there other insights from this work that could help maintain koala populations' diversity? We've been able to reconstruct what 
koala populations looked like through history. And this is really important for management because it's it's very tempting to manage a species just the way you see it now. So to so to bring in the way a species has been historically for 10, 20, 30,000 years is the best practice for managing it because you're allowing them to exchange the genes that they that remain in the population. So it's incredible to be able to document that diversity and ensure that we are making decisions using those data. Do you think there's more that can be done now based on this work that could help conservation? I think that's the amazing thing about a genome, any genome project. It's an incredible achievement and we know so much, but we also know how much we don't know. And so it provides an incredible springboard for future studies. Everything from looking at how those the variation in their bitter taste receptors might vary across the population. Some animals are known to love certain trees and how does that, what is the interplay between the, the, the trees that they choose and the variation? that they show in their own genome. So so having a genome is really just the beginning. That was Rebecca Johnson, director of the Australian Museum Research Institute. You can find her paper in Nature Genetics, nature.com forward slash NG. There's also a short video about the research on our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. Don't worry, there are no puns in the video. Thursday the 5th of July 2018 is LGBT STEM Day. It's a day to recognise marginalised sexualities and gender identities in science, technology, engineering and maths. It aims to help raise awareness and support and strive for increased inclusivity and diversity. In this week's Nature, John Freeman from New York University has written a comment piece looking at the reasons that LGBTQ plus people are dropping out of science. I gave him a call and started by asking him about his own experiences of academia. I've had a number of experiences in my career uh, as an undergraduate. Uh, a professor warned me that I wouldn't get into any PhD programs if I kept looking the way I did. Uh, and, and then also cases where, for example, as a starting out faculty member, when I was interviewing postdoctoral candidates for my lab, and you know, a colleague pulled aside a postdoc candidate for my lab to let him know that I'm gay, just in case it might be a problem. So this is not at all um, something that is from decades ago, for example, this perspective really is more on how this affects us today. I mean, what what is the state of play then at the moment for people who are LGBTQ plus in STEM? I mean, you, what, what, you said they're dropping out. What's what's going on? So the so research on LGBTQ people in STEM fields is extremely scarce. From the few studies that exist, which have really come out recently, the results are quite sobering. So. Um, estimates suggest that LGBTQ people are um, roughly 20% less represented in STEM fields than expected. Um, now, studies that can really get at the mechanism a little bit more and, and say what's going on are those studies that you know look at dropout in particular. So there was one study um, published this year. What they found was that men from sexual minorities who started university specializing in STEM fields were um, far more likely to drop out of those STEM-focused degrees after four years. However, they were more likely to pursue practical research experience and more likely to get involved in labs. And besides that, with this underrepresentation and with this attrition or this dropout, when they do continue on in STEM, it's very clear recent surveys showing that LGBTQ people report more negative workplace experiences. 69% felt uncomfortable in their departments. So 
with all this information, what it's suggesting is that you know STEM fields are um, are not really being a welcoming environment for LGBTQ people. You say in your comment that invisibility is a problem for LGBTQ scientists. Um, what did you mean by that? Being from a sexual or gender minority, being an LGBTQ person, um, is is not visually conspicuous often in the sense that people often can't tell if someone is is LGBTQ. But in science, it's so critical to have for underrepresented groups, role models and peers and other people that look like you and are like you. And and this is something that has been explored a lot with women in STEM fields and, and those from minority ethnic groups. And so there's a number of reasons how LGBTQ people, when they're in STEM, are not deciding to be visible. And that can be a problem because it, there's, you know, other LGBTQ scientists and especially trainees and students won't really benefit from a sense of belonging and inclusion that they might feel if they saw visible role models and saw visible peers and other people where it's a, an implicit signal that this is a community where they, you know, can participate in and, and belong. Well, John, what needs to be done to create an inclusive environment for LGBTQ researchers? So I think a number of steps should be taken. I think that the diversity initiatives of federal funding agencies and of universities um, widely should really consider including LGBTQ people in an official manner. Um, and, And that would do a number of things, I think. For one, certainly directly, they would foster LGBTQ representation in STEM fields It would also send, I think, an official signal to the scientific community that this is a valued form of diversity, LGBTQ people, and that this is a kind of diversity that science cares about and wants to see adequate representation of. Um, I mean, we can't have this conversation really without mentioning that, of course, it's uh, it's LGBT STEM Day this week. My question to you, John, is well, obviously that's a, that's a big deal, right? It's the first international day. Who is doing good work in this sphere at the moment uh, in terms of raising awareness of, of the issues and what have you? There's a lot of good work being done by uh, a, a number of organizations. So um, Out in STEM and the, um, the National Organization of Gay and Lesbian Scientists and Technical Professionals and Pride in STEM and a number of other groups. Um, recently, there's been um, a visibility campaign called 500 Queer Scientists online that's taken place this month where you know LGBTQ scientists can post their, their bios and their stories and a photo and kind of and be part of this sort of database where you can see other people. And when I was looking through it, it made me realize how powerful it is and how how much of an issue of invisibility it is to see, you know, 500 plus LGBTQ scientists on this website that you can, you know, just Google and get to. Not only is it great for visibility, but also, um, I think in terms of next steps that, that, you know, departments could be taking when inviting speakers, you can now go into the database and, and find these people. And I think that would be really valuable moving forward in trying to um, be more inclusive and to do all the kind of small and subtle steps to, to make it a more visible and welcoming environment that we know will lead to positive effects for LGBTQ representation and, and reduce this dropout rate that we're seeing. That was John Freeman from New York University. You can read his comment over at nature.com nature. Later in the show, it's the news chat where we'll find out whether there's an upper limit on how old humans can get. Before that, though, Ellie Mackay is here with this week's research highlights. 
If you've ever awkwardly tried to guess if a friend is pregnant, then you know how marine biologists feel. They've got their work cut out for them with the somewhat heavy-set humpback whale, where there's simply no way to tell if these oceanic giants are expecting just by looking at them. But now scientists have developed a humpback pregnancy test. By firing a dart into a female whale's blubber to obtain a tissue sample, her fat stores can be tested for progesterone, a telltale sign of pregnancy. This gives an indication of the whale's reproductive state without needing to judge from the size of her belly. The scientists hope to use this test to study reproduction patterns in whales and other rotund marine mammals. If you think that story was swell, find it in Conservation Physiology. If you're anything like me, you spent your youth standing awkwardly in the corner at parties. But to date, nobody has known where giant manta ray youths spend their time, as the rays are usually only sighted once they're adults. Now, scientists may have finally solved the mystery of the missing mantas, with the discovery of a marine nursery off the coast of Texas. The researchers found that 95% of the mantas in this sanctuary were juveniles. They believe the plankton-rich waters are an attractive haven for baby and teenage rays before they brave the wider ocean. For more on that story, glide on over to Marine Biology. Next up, reporter Lizzie Gibney has been finding out how to calculate using DNA. Even if your handwriting's pretty terrible, if you wrote down the number seven, I could tell that it wasn't a six. That's because each seven will share common features, a line across the top and one going down. But the exact shape can vary a lot, so computers find recognising patterns like this hard. One way computers can handle this kind of image recognition is to use an artificial neural network, a kind of algorithm modelled on the way the brain works. In neural networks, connections between artificial neurons have different strengths, known as weights, that depends on how likely a particular feature is to exist in the pattern you're trying to recognise. This allows the algorithm to automatically recognise scrawled numbers as the correct digits. Now scientists from Caltech have come up with a way to create a neural network, but not using a silicon-based computer. Instead, they're using DNA. Here's bioengineer Kevin Cherry. So in our DNA-based computer, uh, we use the identity of molecules and we encode them to... Uh, perform a set of chemical reactions that we've designed uh, to compute some function. This is not the first DNA computer, but up until now, they've all been pretty simple. A lot of work in the field has been focused on building logic like AND and OR gates, but the neural network architecture allows us to do um, a lot more powerful computation within sort of the same size of molecules. And so um, we implemented a type of neural network um, which allows us to compute uh, and recognise much more sophisticated patterns, all with about the same number of molecules. These new DNA computers literally live inside test tubes. But the neural network Kevin built needs to recognise images. So the first hurdle is to work out how to represent an image using DNA molecules in a test tube. When we take a uh, handwritten digit, we put it onto a 10 by 10 grid of pixels. Uh, and each of those pixels is represented by a short DNA sequence of about 30 nucleotides. And when we choose a specific handwritten digit, we can 
take the pixels that are in that pattern and then pipette those DNA molecules into the uh, liquid solution in order to do the computation. So the input image is represented as a series of strings of DNA. But what is the computer? Well, that's made of DNA too. And then we have a weight matrix, which we've uh, trained using a computer and then added to the test tube. Uh, so in that case, it looks like DNA molecules which store the patterns that we uh, want to recognize. A different set of molecules, the weight matrix, encodes the computer's memory for each number. One matrix is designed to detect the number 6, and one detects the number 7, and so on. Each matrix is made up of many strands of DNA. Like the input image, each strand of the matrix corresponds to a particular pixel in the 10 by 10 grid. To make the DNA computer, Kevin adds a different concentration of each of these DNA strands. These concentrations represent the likelihood that a coloured-in pixel would appear in a number. In neural network jargon, these likelihoods are called weights, and they're calculated using a regular computer. Right, so currently we uh, program it on the computer, so we uh, logically come up with uh, some pattern that we want to recognize and find an appropriate set of weights. Uh, and then I go into the lab and pipette the DNA molecules uh, into the mixture in order to build that specific network. Now that the weight matrix is in the test tube with the DNA representing the image, the calculations can begin. The weight molecules and the molecules representing the image interact, producing output molecules. So how does all this make a calculation? Well, remember that if a particular pixel crops up often in a number, there will be a lot of memory molecules in the weight matrix for that particular pixel. So if that same pixel is also in the input pattern, you get lots of reactions and lots of output molecules from that memory. If the pixel has a low weight in the matrix, you don't get so many. This means that when all the output molecules are tallied, the total reflects how similar the input pattern is to the number that that matrix represents. That means if you put two weight matrices in the solution, the one that the input is most similar to will produce the most reactions and so more of its own output molecules. The resulting outputs can then be processed and made to fluoresce a different colour depending on which is one out. In this way, just by chucking a bunch of molecules in a test tube, the DNA computer is able to calculate which number it thinks the pattern is most like. And it was pretty accurate. We took the whole set of uh, six and seven digits from a well-known uh, database of handwritten numbers. And so there's approximately 12,000 in this case. Uh, and we simulated the reaction for all of those uh, digits. And uh, more than 98% of them are able to compute correctly. Um, and then we uh, targeted a set of about 50 of them to experimentally demonstrate in the laboratory. The key thing about a neural network is that because it's based on weights and probabilities, it's flexible. An image doesn't have to be an exact match to the memory. Instead, the network can detect which number an image is most like. Right now, the network has to be programmed by manually pipetting in different concentrations of DNA to represent the different weights. One day, he wants to create a DNA computer which learns on its own. Yes, that is something that I am currently working on. The benefit of this uh, type of neural network architecture is that um, we can set it up with sort of blank memories and then trigger the memories uh, via the molecular environment. And so then it would be capable of learning without the input 
of the experimental at all. That was Kevin Cherry from the California Institute of Technology in the United States. You can read his paper over at nature.com forward slash nature. Well, listeners, it's that time again. It's the news chat. And this week I'm joined by Richard Van Norden, features editor here at Nature. Hi, Richard. Hi, Ben. Well, for our first story today, Richard, we're going to talk about old age. And we've got a story suggesting there's actually maybe no natural limit for how old a human can live. Um, What's going on here? Well, as we get older, the risk that we'll die in the next year generally increases. But a new study is suggesting that if you make it past about 105, your chance of passing away in the next year levels off around 50-50. And if death risk does flatten out like this, rather than continuing to increase as we get older, this study suggests there may be no natural upper limit to human lifespan. All right, so let me get this straight then. So as I approach my 90s, the risk of me dying increases. But once I get over that little uh, little hump, I'm more likely to stay alive? Yeah, that's what this study suggests. Um, and it's a very controversial topic. Um, and the background to this is that in 2016, a geneticist estimated that there was a ceiling. It was about 115 years old, maybe 125 tops. And essentially, we as a species had reached our natural limit of lifespan. Um, and that work was heavily criticised. And this new study uh, in science is saying, in fact, there could be what they're calling a mortality plateau. Um, when we get very old, our risk of dying might go down a bit. Um, and that they don't know if you get to 115, 120, might the risk of dying go up again year by year. So they're not saying that lifespans are infinite. They're saying that as far as we know, something weird is going on when you get to those very old ages. And you mentioned it at the start then, 50-50, uh, year to year. So almost on the toss of a coin then. Yeah. So these researchers, Elisabetta Barbi and Francesco Lagano, who are Italian, they looked at records on every Italian who's more than 105 years old from 2009 to 2015. That's almost 4,000 people. In that data, they find this, this mortality plateau. Now, that's uh, a very impressive data collection because they looked at birth certificates, death certificates. They're very sure that these people are the age they say they are. And that really bugged the earlier 2016 study. Um, those guys looked at an international database across lots of countries. And one of the criticisms was, can you really be sure that people aren't exaggerating their ages um, and that you know people are the ages that they say they are? Here we have very, very good data. So that's, uh, that's a strike in favour of this latest conclusion. Unfortunately, of course, not everyone is buying this finding. One demographer, Jean-Marie Robin, told us that there's unpublished data from France, Japan and Canada that suggests that the evidence for this mortality plateau is not as clear-cut. And in general, we're still talking about tricky statistics and small amounts of data. In this Italian study, fewer than 100 people lived beyond age 110. So even small inaccuracies in the data or a few changes to the data point could lead to a spurious conclusion or change the trend line. So I think we're just starting to explore this question of whether there is a natural upper limit on our lives. Well, listeners, we actually covered the earlier paper. So if you'd like to learn more about what it found, take a listen to our podcast from the 6th of October 2016. Uh, in the meantime, though, Richard, let's move on to our second story. And we're going to go from one end of the age curve to the very, very other, I think. And we're going to head over to China, where results have been coming out from a birth cohort study that's only a few years old. Um, in the first instance, maybe you could tell our listeners what a birth cohort study is. 
Yeah, so a birth cohort study is something that tracks babies and their mothers from birth and hopefully follows the babies all the way to age 18, essentially to discover as much as possible about the links between uh, diseases in childhood and environmental conditions, uh, DNA, eating habits, mental health, any lifestyle factors. And by following so many people, you can start to pick out really statistically significant patterns And we write about a Chinese study in Guangzhou that's already recruited 33,000 babies and mothers since 2012, and the first results coming out. These researchers hope to reach 50,000 sets of mothers and babies by 2020. Well, Richard, how does this differ from other birth cohort studies around the world? Yeah, there are very large studies in Norway and Denmark, but the Chinese study really stands out because it's looking particularly into links between disease and the microbiome. Um, which other studies haven't done. So far, they've got 1.6 million biological samples and they're recording mothers' uh, mental health and lifestyle factors like the amount of mould in their house uh, and eating habits. And as I say, the results are coming out right now. Uh, One study, for example, has already found that exposure to the fumes from burning incense common in southern China increases the risk of hypertension in expectant mothers. Another study has suggested that progesterone, which is a drug used around the world to try and reduce the risk of preterm births, uh, is sometimes prescribed too early in pregnancy, uh, in more than 40% of the women in the study, in fact. And when it's given before 14 weeks of gestation, you get a higher risk of postpartum depression and a higher risk of the baby needing to be born by cesarean section, but no necessary benefits in reducing the risk of a preterm birth. So these are immediate kind of studies. But perhaps uh, very interestingly, um, a team from the UK and China is trying to figure out how the microbiomes of babies born via the vagina are different from those of the babies born by cesarean section. So this study with so many babies could give us the statistical power to separate out the variables that influence the the baby's microbiome. This could include things like antibiotics, like medications, could include environmental pollutants. So there's lots going on and this study might be the key to answering that tricky question. So you mentioned there that a load of data has already been collected and the researchers are hoping to follow these children until they're 18 years old. Um, What are scientists saying about this cohort study? The researchers behind the study say they want scientists from everywhere around the world to work with them. And it's a particularly interesting point in China, uh, not only because in China right now, they ended their one-child policy in 2016. So there's a new opportunity to study uh, women who are having a second child. And an epidemiologist uh, who's directing the project, Xiu Chu, says she's using the data to test a sort of tentative finding that older mothers having their second child have a lower risk of depression during pregnancy than women pregnant with their first child. You might expect the opposite, because if you have a baby and then you're pregnant again, you might be under more stress, you might have a higher financial burden, be more depressed. But that may not be the case, she thinks. So it's a kind of interesting, unique situation um, that's going on here, along, of course, with um, China's vast resources that they're pouring into this project, and very few other countries can achieve this kind of scale. Well, thank you, Richard. Listeners, for more of the latest science news, head over to nature.com slash news. And actually, you can also hear Richard in last month's Back Chat, where we talked a bit more about data and data journalism. Uh, So check that out wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that's it for this week's show. But before we go, there's just time to tell you about a new video. It highlights the first two weeks of human development, and it contains some amazing images. 
You can find that, as well as our koala video, over on our YouTube channel. That's at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com.